Hello and welcome to the Booker Price podcast with me, Joe Hamia. And me, James Walton. And we've got a slightly unusual format for you this week because, James, you've gone off and done an episode without me. I'm so sorry, Joe. Um, they made me do it. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> all that is, I went to the Times and Sunday Times <laughs> Cheltenham Literature Festival, as it's officially known, uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, um, and interviewed all six of the shortlisted authors for this year's Booker Prize. Uh, three of them live on stage and three of them uh, on Zoom but miraculously turning up from all around the world in Cheltenham Town Hall, which was a packed, I think, about a thousand people there. I mean, it's a great thing about literary festivals, really. You know, that you know, a thousand people turn up for an event like that, and it seemed to go all right. Yeah, it's heartwarming. I love a good literary festival. But now, actually, what I really want to ask you, James, is spill the tea. What are they like, yeah. our six shortlistees? <laughs> How did you get on with them? How did you find them? Well, slightly awkwardly, given that... Um, you know, we didn't like all of the books, and I was savaging a couple of them in the last in the episodes when which we discussed the shortlist. They were all lovely, yeah. so I feel awful. <laughs> I feel such a hypocrite. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I did I vaguely challenge bits that I wondered about, but, but obviously, my job there was to just let them speak. And the, yeah. the thing about authors these days is they're all really good. All six were just terrific. You know, I, I'm I'm pretty sure that 20 years ago there'd be one shy one or one who was a bit rubbish or anything. It's sort of part of being an author now, I think, is that you're just good at that. And they all were, and they were lovely. And the three who were uh, live on stage, which is Chetna Maru and two of the three Pauls, <laughs> Lynch and Murray, we had a, 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 a drink afterwards in the in the green room and they signed me books and everything. And it was all lovely. And I'm very sorry that to Paul Lynch that I then went on to question aspects of Prophet Song when we discussed it. And I like to think that it was a successful event. Yeah. Uh, so here we go with the recording from Cheltenham Town Hall a couple of weeks ago. And welcome to the Town Hall, to the Sun Times and Sunday Times Cheltenham Literature Festival and to Booker Prize 2023. Um, my name's James Walton. I'm the co-host of the new Booker Prize podcast, uh, which started in July and is available wherever you get your podcasts. Um, sorry about that shameless plug, but Booker made me do it, I promise. Um, anyway, um, with that out of the way, I'm delighted to say that we're joined this afternoon by all six of this year's shortlisted authors. Three, as you can see, live on stage and three uh, joining us online. In the flesh, we've got Paul. Lynch, Chetna Maru and Paul Murray, spread across the globe are Sarah Bernstein, Donald Scoffrey and Paul Harding. So please welcome them all. Um, and two little facts about the 2023 lineup. It's a rare example of a Booker shortlist where none of the authors has been shortlisted before. And it's a unique example of a Booker shortlist where three of the authors are called Paul. So... <laughs> So apologies uh, to the authors who are going to be clapped into silence for now, but um, let's begin with Paul Lynch, author of Prophet Song, which is set in a near future version of Ireland, uh, where a totalitarian government has come to power, um, which begins with something that's never terribly good in these circumstances, a, a knock on the door late at night by the secret police. Uh, but as well as powerfully capturing the terrifying impact of the new regime on the country, uh, the book is also a thoroughly imagined account of the effects on a single family led by the mother, Ailish Stack, who's a terrific character. I think most readers will agree with that. Uh, but anyway, Paul, thanks so much for joining us and congratulations it's great to be on being shortlisted. Um, okay, so here's the first question. Why, what made you decide to set a, a story of totalitarianism in, in Ireland? Not the most obvious choice, really, of place for that to happen, I, I wouldn't have thought. 
You know, everything we do is rationalization after the fact when you're a writer. Writing comes from the place of dream. And for me, I think it's important to talk about what I was feeling or thinking at that time in 2018 when I started writing the book. I had just reread Herman Hesse's Steppenwolf. And there's a page in that book that I remember reading in my 20s where Harry Haller is describing Germany um, in 1927, this sort of sense of political unrest, the disintegration, the xenophobia on the streets, just that climate. And I remember, and he said, the, the next war is inevitable. And I remember reading that in my 20s thinking, wow, what was an extraordinary time compared to, say, the sedate 1990s at the, when I was reading it. But when I reread it in 2018, the chill went up the back of my spine because I thought, this is actually now. And so I found myself writing into the opening of Prophet Song. And, I, you know, if, if, if I had said something like this in a country where you may say this might be typical, then the power is gone. Because, you know, the idea of this cannot happen here is fundamentally a, one of the questions that I'm asking in the book. It's all, it's all about the posing of the questions. I really miss 90s complacency. Yes. <laughs> Wasn't that great? Um, uh, but um, but in, in a way, you sort of... The end of history, that's what it was. <laughs> yeah. uh, in a way, you, what's interesting as well about the book is you, you just, in a way, just place the situation before us. Here is totalitarian Ireland. Um, there's a reference to some sort of crisis that's led to this government coming to power. Yeah, it, it, did, did you have in mind what that crisis was? Or, no, I mean, I was deeply interested in Syria and I had been reading books about the Syrian problem for another project. And so that was in mind. But as I was writing, you know, it's not totalitarian at the start. That's the thing. It's incremental. And, and I wanted to capture that sense of the frog boiling. I wanted to measure how change occurs and how we don't recognize the change as it's occurring. It's one of the things that I'm doing in the book. Um, but so uh, I wanted to capture that sense of a narrative that could, could contain all narratives. And so th there was a line from Cormac McCarthy's The Crossing that was I wanted to use as, as an epigraph for the book, but he was, he was dying and we couldn't get permission in time for publication, where he says that, you know, people may think that the choice is to choose um, many, uh, one, one story from many that are available, but really the choice is to make many of the one. And that's what I was trying to do was to capture multiple political realities, multiple scenarios in the one container, which is this book. And you decided also to focus on a, on a single family, as I said, by, led by the very appealing character of, of Eilish. Yeah. Do, do you like her as much as I, I suspect most readers do? Yeah, I, you know, to me, Eilish is, is just this, this typical character in her 40s who's been squeezed from every direction. This is part of, for me, the sort of intense realism of the book is, is so much of what might be considered dystopian often feels to me sort of paper mache world. And for me, the idea of an intense realism must come from somebody who's completely enmeshed in, in, in their lives. Her father has dementia, you know, her teenage children have various things pulling on them. And she's trying, and she's got obviously Larry who's taken by the police and she's trying to hold all of these things together while also keeping her career so the question of should you leave becomes an impossibility for her how can she leave she is completely enmeshed and that's 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 part of her struggle and part of of who she is it's, you've got that stuff about the, 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 the history in a way is the story of people who leave it too late to leave yeah 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 and 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 she has uh, 
a sister in Canada who's saying to her, it's, you need to go. This is, it's time to get out. And she's saying, how can I go? You know, what happens if, if my dad, if dad falls and breaks a hip, what then? And it's that simple for her. Um, and so this is, this is part of the co complexity of, 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 I mean, I'm, I'm interested in fiction that, that offers the deepest level of complexity. That's what I think we should do is open things out and just pose questions. There are no answers in Prophet Song. It's, it's all about the framing of the question. Okay, well, thank, thank, thanks so much, Paul. And next up for the in-depth treatment is a Sarah Bernstein, author of Study for Obedience, whose unnamed narrator goes to an unnamed northern country um, to look after her oldest brother, who, not necessarily always to her benefit, she's always looked up to since she was a girl. She also has to navigate the weirdly suspicious locals, uh, weirdly suspicious partly because she doesn't speak the language, but partly too, we gradually realise, because she's Jewish and this is a place where Jews have been persecuted. But at the same time, the narrator might not be all she seems either. I'll, I'll have to ask Sarah a bit about this. Uh, she has strange habits of, for example, making grass talisman dolls and leaving them out for the villagers to find. Um, Sarah, hello and welcome. Um, Hi. Uh, lovely to have you with us. Um, first question is quite an easy one. Uh, where are you? Um, I'm in the northwest highlands of Scotland, where I live. Okay. Well, well uh, great to have you here in, in Cheltenham Town Hall. And this is a book where, as the, as the title suggests, uh, Study for Obedience is about obedience, uh, uh, partly, and not least about its dangers, really, both, both to the person obeying and the person being obeyed. What, 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 what drew you to that theme? A few years ago, I had gone to see a retrospective of the painter Paula Rego's work um, in Edinburgh. And up on the wall, they had a quotation from the artist where she said something like, um, my women can be obedient and murderous at the same time. And you can really see that in, in the way that she, she creates her scenes, particularly her domestic scenes. So I got really obsessed with that dynamic. And I started to wonder if it could be recreated in language. So that sort of became the seed of the idea, how something that is supposed to be passive, a characteristic like obedience, that's usually passive, that's usually feminized, could become something agential and could act in the world. So that's, that's sort of what I was interested in at the, at the start anyway. I think, thank you. Now the, um there's a review of your first novel, The Coming Bad Days, which places it in uh, a new tradition, if there's such a thing as a new tradition, um, of novels that keep things vague or at least dispense with quite a lot of the normal signposts. So here too, in your, in your second novel, we don't know the names of any of the characters, except, except the dog, actually, don't we? Um, and, uh, or the country where it's taking place, or when it's taking place. It partly seems timeless, but there's references to Twitter and to Microsoft Teams and so on. Um, are you... Looking to disorientate the reader, is that part of what you're trying to, an uh, experience you're trying to produce? I think, I, I don't think that much about the reader when I'm writing. I think what I was interested in, in, in this book anyway, is to think about, um, rather than a, a kind of specific historical event, to think about the way a certain experience of history could be sort of passed down through generations, rather than, you know, um, a trauma in a specific event, but seeing how somebody might embody an experience of history. In this case, it's this kind of the narrator's sense that there's a kind of catastrophe that's always just outside of the garden gate about to come get her. Um, so I think that that's what I was interested in, in not locating the country, certainly, 
um, and and not sort of specifying the the context of the atrocity that happens to her family. And it's not a book that gives up its secrets easily. This, but but there are sort of little clues, incre- you know, increasingly sort of dark suggestions throughout the book. But if you don't think of the reader, I was going to I was going to say, do you you have to trust the reader a bit in those circumstances, don't you? And you're never tempted to just give us a kind of nudge in the ribs, but just to to let us make of it what we will. Yeah, I think so, and I think um, I I sort of believe that once once you write something you're not no longer kind of in control of its meaning, right? You're not in control of how whatever you write is going to be received much as it might be tempting to try to control a narrative over your book. Um, but yeah, there is a certain level of trust that I think I have for the reader. I trust that they will, um, find, find their own way through the text and find points of orientation that are theirs. And there are, there are, I mean, it does make it most intriguing. There are clues cunningly planted, I think, here and there. And, and, and one, one last question: we do again, quite a big one, really. Um, but it's not, it's not. It's a book that, in the end, is 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 without simple goodies and baddies, which, given that it's about Jews and anti-Semites, uh, might seem quite daring. Were you aware of, you know, that that might cause, I don't know, anxiety to either you or to some of your readers? I think I really wanted to question this idea that in order for somebody to be cast as a victim, for us to be able to acknowledge that something bad has happened to them, I wanted to to sort of refuse the idea that that same person has to be totally innocent in all other areas of their life. I think that's an exceedingly troubling idea. Um, and I also think that we're all enmeshed in this, you know, in the terrible history of the world together, right. To varying degrees. Um, and obviously, you know, in this case, it is fairly straightforward, right. We know who, who the baddies and the goodies are supposed to be, but I think the narrator feels a connection to the people, a kind of ancestral connection to these townspeople as well that recognizes their humanity and doesn't, doesn't sort of cast them beyond, the the realm of um the human really because that's that's another way of denying the way bad things happen i think yeah no i must say that, 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 that your idea of that that it, you know we always talk about innocent victims as if unless they're 100 percent innocent that's somehow not victims uh that, that yeah. is a very striking feature of the book i think thank you thank you uh sarah uh we, we move on now to to paul murray uh and his novel the beasting uh, another book set in Ireland, uh, but this time in a recent and a recognizable recent past, where the boom years of the Celtic tiger uh, have given way to the financial crash, uh, putting Dickie Barnes's car business in big trouble, and with it his entire family, wife Imelda, teenage daughter Cass, and his 12-year-old son PJ, all of whom the novel thoroughly inhabits, uh, with their different perspectives constantly shifting, even undermining what we thought we knew. Uh, hi, Paul. Uh, again, uh, thanks and congratulations to you. Um, as I say, the Beasting sees the story through the eyes of all four of them, the, of, the, of the family. Um, which were the most difficult, you know, which were the most enjoyable to inhabit? Which are the most difficult to inhabit? You've got a teenage girl, 12-year-old boy, uh, and the mum and dad. Which, 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 were there any way you thought, oh, good, I'm writing about so-and-so today? Uh, well, I went through the book linearly. So, so I started with Cass. Uh, and initially it was going to be all Cass's story. Um, and, uh, she's got like a sort of a very sort of, you know, um, teenage view of the world. She sees things in very black and white terms. She sees herself as the innocent victim all the time. 
and her parents as kind of the you know the enemies. Um, and her brother, her brother's, her, her brother's probably the sweetest member of the of the family. Oh, he's, he's lovely, PJ. He's very he's 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 the only one of the family who really believes in the family. Like everyone else, Cass and the two parents, they want to escape. Like they see the family as this kind of like negative space that they have to kind of break free from. Um, and PJ is the, he's the believer, you know, who who really wants them to to stay together and sees like the the, the value and the love that that they've sort of you know stopped being able to perceive. Um, so I liked it. I mean, I liked all the sections. I really kind of, I feel like you have to make a connection with each character if you're going to write the book that way. Um, the parents, when I got to the parents sections, that's where the book sort of really changes for me and for the reader too, uh, because the parents have a past, which the kids don't really have. Uh, and from having seen the parents from this, from the kids perspective, which is quite sort of two dimensional, uh, as I say, like they just see the parents as these kind of, you know, irritating kind of cartoon figures. Um, you suddenly realize that the parents are, are people and have had this trauma in their background, uh, which is still kind of like driving, driving their, their, their lives today. Uh, so I really, I really sort of, I mean, I felt, I felt a lot of, a lot of, uh, I don't know if you're supposed to feel like a lot of love for your own characters, but I did really sort of feel, uh, you know, each one was important to me in their own way. And each of each section was rewarding for me to write in, in, in its own way. Um, yeah. I mean, there is a sense of love for the characters, but no spoilers, but quite a lot of terrible things happened to them all. Did you feel mean? <laughs> so it's a slightly naive question, but well, did you I, think, oh, oh, maybe I'll just cut them a break here. I, I wrote a book called, called Skippy Dies, and in that book, Skippy Dies on like page, page five. So, you know, you, you really have to kind of be tough with yourself, you know, when, when you're writing a book. Uh, and yeah, the, each of them, they're all going through their own kind of individual struggle. Uh, and I, I felt sad for the things that were happening to them, but, but I really wanted to... People have hard lives, you know? When you talk to, like, you know, ordinary people, the stories they tell you... I think part of my journey as a writer, as, as I get older, is that, like, I've got better at just listening to people and people's stories. And uh, if you're willing to listen, people are surprisingly willing to tell you, like, very intimate details from their lives. And a lot of the details are just about, you know, just just difficulty, you know, or pain or illness or, 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 you know, death in the past that they've never got over, you know? So, so, um, that's what I was trying to get at in the book that each of the, each of the characters has something that they, they feel very isolated and they feel very alone because they don't think any of the other members can understand them or help them. But we, the reader having this sort of perspective, you know, this kind of this, this overarching perspective, we can see that if they'd only talk to each other, then, they could fix things, you know, and they could move forward. And the sort of the tragedy of the book is that um, they don't, they're just not able to kind of, to make that leap. Let's leave uh, Cheltenham Town Hall for a minute and we'll be back after this short break. Welcome back to part two with James at Cheltenham. 
Fun enough on the, on the Booker Prize podcast, uh, only yesterday we were interviewing George Saunders, who won with uh, Lincoln in the Bardo. And one of his ideas of, of fiction, particularly the short story, I think, is that uh, it constantly asks you to re-examine what you thought you knew. So you think, oh, yes, that's what so-and-so is like. And then you read on and know, and know, and know, and know. In, and in a way, that's, that's how you, the, that changing of perspectives in your book. Do, do you imagine the reader and thinking, wow, this will blow their minds? I, I really, well, one of the big drivers for me was the difference between how you see your parents when you're a kid um, and then how you sort of, you understand that relationship when you become a parent yourself. So, so as I say, the two kids see their, see their parents as being um, not quite cartoons, but they don't really imagine them as having had lives before the kids were born. Like it's the kids until, you know, when you're a kid, you kind of think like until, you know, you arrived and kind of, uh, present them with meaning. Your parents are just sort of floundering around, you know, uh, just getting, growing sideburns or wearing, whatever it might be. Um, and then when you get older and you, and you become a parent yourself, um, you, you kind of realize that your parents um, were just like you. Like they were, they were sort of, instead of being just these kind of monolithic lawgivers, they're people who are trying to just to, to kind of create this new role for themselves. And they don't know how, so they're improvising, and they're, it's difficult, and they make mistakes. Uh, so I guess that was one of the really big kind of engines for, for the plot for me, uh, was just um, making that flip. So, so you, you start the book thinking, wow, these parents, they're, they're just obsessed with money, and they're sort of very superficial characters. And then um, when you get to their sections, um, it, it turns over, and you, sort of, you realize that there's... there's uh, a lot more going on there and that the kids the way the kids think and the way the kids see the world is unbeknownst to them actually sort of largely kind of created by the parents um, worldview and what's happened to the parents okay, well thank, thanks so much Paul um, and so to a man weirdly not called Paul uh, which is uh, Jonathan Scoffrey's uh, uh, If I Survive You which is one of the two debut books on this year's book of shortlist it's a collection of interlinked stories about a Jamaican family whose parents moved to Miami in the late 1970s to escape political violence on the island and again we get the perspective of several family members but the main focus is on the younger son Trelawney who's born in America uh, as he struggles to work out his identity. Uh, hi, Jonathan. Uh, thanks for joining us. Where, where, where are you joining us from? I'm in Oakland, California. Okay, well, now, now you're in Cheltenham too. Um, uh, if I Survive You opens with the words, it begins with, what are you? In italics, hollowed from the perimeter of your f front yard when you're nine, younger, probably. And this question, what are you, uh, reverberates throughout the book. Um, so why is it such a hard one for Trelawney to answer? And does he ever manage to answer it, do you think? Well, in, in one sense, um, he has essentially been um, placed in a position where his, his parents haven't given him the context of uh, an American racial identity because they don't know it. They themselves haven't emigrated from Kingston, Jamaica to the U.S. And um, over here, especially thinking about the 1980s, there wasn't a lot of room for bringing your kind of ethnic uh, identity from uh, Caribbean islands over to the United States and then kind of holding on to that. Um, a place like Jamaica, which, you know, the national motto is out of many one people. It's, it's kind of uh, a place that, you know, the government sanctioned ideas that you're embracing this, um, in a sense, mixed 
uh, heritage, especially if you have um, a, a, a mixed heritage that you, you know, you maybe have your, your grandparents who are coming from different places, their, their pictures in the, the living room. Whereas in the United States, you, you have this um, more, uh, I, I guess, boiled down kind of um, one drop rule for, for, for black people. Um, but that's not something that the, the parents are prepared to give Chalani um, that, that, that kind of um, confidence in, in a kind of black identity in a sense. And so, you know, that's, that's in, a, in a sense, that's, that's part of it. And there's this kind of cultural, you know, what, where are his cultural allegiances as someone who's been born in the United States, but is very much growing up in a Jamaican household? Or um, how is he to kind of operate um, as a man in the world, in the world, in a sense? Um, that's, a, you know, another question that he's, he's being asked as he uh, at times is kind of doubting that his father uh, is giving him the 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 right answer is because some of what the, the father believes about how to be a man in the world is, is not necessarily um, what Trelawney is believing is kind of uh, uh, agrees with like how you be good in the world. He's seeing the contradictions and um, he's having a difficult time with it. But, you know, the book hopefully is, is kind of breaking down these, um, these assumptions that we have that some of these ideas are, are, are very simple or essential. Um, whereas, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that the scenes, the, the kind of dramatization of these um, uh, instances where Chilani's being asked these questions, hopefully is, is, is giving the reader an idea that maybe, um, you know, things aren't, that the things that we take for granted are, are maybe more complex than we sometimes think. Does he, do you think he comes to answer that question, what are you by the end of the book or, or is it, always going to be a continuing struggle i think it's going to be a continuing struggle it's just you know depending on how you how you look at it it's potentially a positive or you know maybe that's a tragedy that nothing changes um in terms of his idea of of of, um, his ability to answer that question um and maybe that's a tragic thing on the other hand you know understanding that these boxes that we're told we must fit in um, in terms of identity, in some cases, um, you know, it's, it's possibly a, a very uh, positive thing. He's, he's a human being, you know. So if you say he should identify as one particular thing, there, there's a lot of assumptions that come along with, you know, whatever he chooses to say or what people say he is. Um, there's a lot of, you know, there's the stereotype that comes with that. There's the, 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 the biases that come with that. And for him, you know, Chalani's just trying to be a human in the world. They're trying to deal with, you know, a lot of the, the difficulties that come along with, with being alive um, at the time he is. And so, you know, in, in, a, in a way, that's, I think there's a kind of... Um, possibility there for, for him um, so that he's not necessarily given into the, the limitations of a particular idea of him. Um, but, you know, I, I, I don't know that he comes to, uh, you know, one particular idea of what, what are you, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's not necessarily a question that um, he, he believes he should be asked in the first place. Yeah, there is that. Okay, thank, thank you. Thanks, thanks, Jonathan, um, very much. Um, and so to our second uh, debut book on the shortlist, which is Chetna Maru's Western Lane, uh, a deeply moving account of a bereaved family. Um, that's all the more moving, really, for how much it, the book and, and the family leave unsaid. 
I, I would suggest. Uh, instead, the game of squash uh, becomes a, a way that the three daughters and their fam and their father spend time together um, initially, and then and, the, and kind of connect following the death of his wife and their mother. And 11-year-old Gopi then turns out to be very keen on the game. She's the youngest of the three, and luckily very good at it too. Hi, right, Turner. The usual welcome, thanks, and congratulations to you on Western Lane. Um, I did try, but I couldn't avoid the obvious first question. Did you play squash when you were younger, and were you quite good at it? Well, when I was a child, much younger, um, I was extremely uncoordinated, um, and I didn't do sports. But um, much later in life, I, I started playing squash, um, probably when I was about 19, and then it was years after that that I played properly. Um, and I think the main thing that helped me play properly was taking lessons. Um, and I had a really great coach who taught me to think of the game as a fight for space and that the objective as the game is to move the opponent and not the ball. And so as well as doing kind of lots of drills, sort of those two things were really a foundation for the game, which held me in good stead. And so I was in a good... I, I would play in not amazing leagues, but decent leagues, um, and you know, probably more than three or four times I would be in the court and a six foot man would turn up, come in the court, look at me and think, okay, well, it's not really play worth playing this through. And I wasn't great, but I was probably more accurate and more strategic. Um, and so I had a bit of a surprise. <laughs> Did you wonder how much squash to put in the book? Which I would say is just the right amount, by the way. It's not a, it's, uh, I'm not doing a Joe Paxman here. It wasn't something I worried about. Um, as I was writing, you know, it was just a case of trying to figure out where is the right place to go um, here with this sort of family that are struggling with their grief. And actually, when the squash appears, it's, it's not just a game that's on the page. What we're seeing is how this family are interacting with each other um, and what the young girl who's narrating, um, she's 11 uh, in, in the narrative, how she is using the game to kind of make sense of the world, to watch people, to figure out what someone is about to do, what they're feeling. Um, so having squash in the book and having a lot of squash in the book um, didn't worry me because I, it, it wasn't just there for the game. No, no it's really not just squash. I, 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 there's, there's, for example, that very first page that we heard there, uh, we, uh, and the narrator says, the echo, which is the ball striking the wall of the court, is louder than the shot itself. And it, in a way, I don't know if this is pretentious reviewees, but that's what I do, um, is um, in a way that's how the book works because the prose is quiet, it's understated, but the echo of it, the, the, the pain that, that's underlying it is, is, is much louder. And uh, as I say, it's a book in a way which the family and the book leave quite a lot unsaid, but that it's still, it's very powerful to the reader. So basically what I'm saying is, how do you write about the unsaid given that by definition you can't say it? I remember you think, talk about two things there. So one of the um, 
one of the inspirations for the book, or not for the book, but when I was thinking about the book. Um, so I, I had the world of the story, but I was kind of resisting writing it as a novel. And um, in the days before I wrote the opening, I went back to a lot of the science fiction of my childhood. And I kept going back to this one line from Slaughterhouse-Five by um, Kurt Vonnegut. Um, because this moment simply is. And this idea that a moment is permanently in space, and it exists permanently in space, um, it sort of became the fabric of the book. And so that kind of idea of, you know, you mentioned the reverberation and that sort of the moment kind of reverberating through time was... Yeah, I kind of had it in my head from the from going back to some of those books that I was reading. Um, in terms of the unsaid, um, I think once I had felt my way into the mind of this 11-year-old girl in this family that is dealing with grief, it, it just came naturally to understand that what happens... Um, a lot of what happens is going to be unspoken. Yeah, and yet, and yet it, it comes through uh, very powerfully in the book, so thank you to you. Um, and uh, so to our fourth, four, a final shortlisted author, Paul Harding, uh, whose novel This Other Eden is inspired by a, a pretty shocking true story about an island off the coast of Maine that for more than a century was home to a racially integrated community descended from enslaved people, Native Americans and others, uh, until that is in the early 20th century when the state authorities uh, eradicated it. I mean, so completely they eradicated not just the living mem members, but also the dead ones by digging up the graves. Um, in the book, this is all done in the name of science as well, and specifically eugenics, the belief that unhealthy or unworthy stock shouldn't be allowed to breed. And core between the authorities and the islanders, in a way, is Matthew Diamond, a Christian teacher, who visits every summer and has built a school on what in the book is called Apple Island. Uh, hello, Paul, and uh, welcome. Um, and uh, just, just for interest's sake, where are you? Where, are you? where do we find you? I'm on um, scenic Long Island in New York. Amazing. Amazing the, the world, isn't it? Anyway, um, uh, so how, I suppose, again, a fairly straightforward first question, but how, how did you, when did you first come across this extraordinary story of the island off Maine and... I'd been uh, just sort of informally reading about the uh, formation of um, labor unions, actually, in the United States after the American Civil War. And um, those are some of the first institutions in the United States, anyways, who advocated for things like civil rights and um, women's suffrage and so forth. And for some reason, it just occurred to me that after the Civil War, there must have been all black and probably racially integrated communities. Uh, so I just Googled it. Um, and, you know, lo and behold, I came upon the story of Malaga Island pretty, pretty quickly. Um, and it just started to sort of insinuate itself in my imagination, um, partly because it's off the coast of the state of Maine, um, where I've set some of my other books and my mother's family is from the state of Maine. Um, and there was something about um, an island that just I found to be resonant and sort of interesting. Um, 
And um, one of the families that was evicted were actually committed to a, an institution called the Maine School for the Feeble-Minded, um, which um, played a small role in my first novel, Tinkers. And this is, you know, when you're a writer, you're just always, you know, asking the universe to give you a sign. Um, and so I was already um, just sort of fascinated with the story of this place and the displacement of these people. Um, and then I found out that almost to the month, if not to the week, um, that the people were evicted from the island, the first International Congress for Eugenics was taking place in London. So I thought that was a pretty good sign from the universe to um, start imagining my way into a very highly fictionalized version of it. I wouldn't call it historical fiction per se. Um, the, the sort of the documentary version of the story was mine to write. I don't have any connection with the people that live up there, the descendants. So I, once I knew that I was going to write about um, a, a plot and a story that was sort of inspired by that, that historic, those historical events, I stopped doing research. I just read two, I had read two or three articles about the island. I stopped doing research and started, um, just trying to work up an imagined version of a story like like Malaga's. And do you think there's any danger in romanticizing the Islanders? In the, do you think the book, were you, were you conscious of Yeah, that? absolutely. I mean, I tried not to romanticize them. I mean, you know, I was trying to find a, a balance. Um, you know, uh, like some of the other authors have been saying, I said, you know, most of the book, I realized sort of what the the kind of tragic dimensions of the book, I realized that m most of the book, most of the pages of the book were to be spent just um, with these people as individuals, as family members who loved each other, who drove each other crazy, who were loyal to one another, all that, um, just how they, how they lived their lives, just people trying to live their lives every day. Um, and the actual eviction um, and the, you know, the terrible things that happened to them are probably only five or 10 pages in the book. I, I realize one of the dangers is romanticizing what happened. And another danger was to make the violence so prevalent that it became gratuitous and sensationalistic. Um, and then <clears throat> sort of combination of those two terrible options would be to make the, to write the book in such a way where in the end, the subject was the reader's self-righteous indignation about what happened to these people. Because the real, the true subject, uh, subjects of the books are those human lives, you know, those, those people that are trying to just sort of make lives for themselves. Okay, thank you. And just, uh, so you have to be really quick on quite a complicated question, but is, is this character Matthew Diamond, who's caught in the middle, is interesting. Um, on the one hand, he, he has sort of revolted by black people, really, but he's, but he's Christian and he wants to do his best, and he's, and he's absolutely outraged by what the authorities do when that happens, and quite surprised. Um, so do you, do you see him as a villain, as a fool, or possibly even as a tragic figure? Well, I think he's, I, I, I certainly, you know, um, consulted my Shakespeare one of the, with, with, with him. One of the things that I'm always fascinated with, with Shakespeare's villains, as, the, as it were, is, um, and what I think, you know, to the extent that I tried to make Matthew Diamond a human being with greater and worse impulses, is that um, he's very of his own racism and um, 
and he knows better. He's ashamed by it and he's disgusted by it. Um, and that seemed to be a, to me, a, 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 sh- a perennial, universal, recognizable human situation is to have a bad impulse, a, ter- a bigotry, um, and know it's terrible, but still not feel differently. You know, so he, he, he knows what the way he, he knows that his prejudice is terrible and yet he experiences it nonetheless. Yeah, we, we don't always feel the things we want to feel that, that, that of course, true. Yeah, that, very interesting. Thank you very much. And that, and, and our time has now run out. Um, but let me thank most warmly then the Times and Sunday Times Cheltenham Literature Festival for having us. Uh, you all for coming. And of course, Paul Lynch, Sarah Bernstein, Paul Murray, Jonathan Scoffey, Chet Namaru, and Paul Hardy. Huge thanks and good luck to them all for November. The 26th is the big day. And there we have it. James, I'm so jealous. It sounds like you had an amazing time. And that was really, really good. Really, really good fun. Uh, as I say, only undermined slightly by my feelings of mild hypocrisy at the fact that I was about to be less than complimentary about some of those books at the uh, at the podcasts we did on on the shortlist but but uh, again a pleasure to meet all of the, of the well, writers and i do wish them all all well for november the 26th when the winner is announced yeah and you'll have to go to confession and purge yourself of your sins because hopefully we'll be talking to a few of them <laughs> <laughs> at yeah. the winner ceremony let's hope they don't don't all listen to the podcast yeah. that's it for this week and you can find out more about all of this year's shortlisted authors at thebookerprizes.com uh, we now also have a Facebook book group that you can join at facebook.com slash the book prizes. And remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok and Substack at the book of prizes. Until next time. Goodbye. Bye. The book of prize podcast is hosted by Joe Hamia and me, James Walton. It's produced and edited by Kevin Miolo. And the executive producer is John Davenport. It's a daddy super production for the book of prizes. Mm-hmm.